are listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. It's your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. With me today, we have John Little and John Suffren. They're the co-creators of a little graphic novel called The Salesman, a graphic novel set in a dystopian future. Resources are scarce, and The Salesman goes door to door to even the score. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hello. I, I read this book, and it delves into a lot of topics that I that I kind of want to discuss. You know, it delves into, like, the scarcity of resources. It delves into how we should be eating mm-hmm. responsibly yep. and the consumerism and sort of overindulgence of our world mm-hmm. and a very harsh, I guess, reaction to that overconsumption, it sort of reminded me of uh, Ditko's Mr. A in terms right. of the salesman's perception of, of justice, where it's right is right. He sort of exacts uh, very harsh ve- vengeance, you know, to sort of make sure his ideology is intact and the world is in balance, as he says in the comic, or at least in balance for him. But before we get into that, I wanted to get a little idea of who you guys are. So why don't we start with you, John Little. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a town called Goddard, Ontario. Okay. On Lake Huron. It's the prettiest town in all of Canada. Uh, it says so on the sign. And uh, <laughs> I moved to Toronto when I was in university. Took painting classes mostly at OCAD. And then I went to Sheridan later on for animation. What got you wanting to study art and uh, and animation? Well, as a child, I was bad at everything, and the only thing I was good at was drawing. People liked me because I drew, and I did it a lot. Girls liked me more, so I did it more. What kinds of things did you draw? At the time, Archie Comics was a popular thing to draw. I drew a lot of Batman, drew a lot of um, uh, Sergio Argonez. Uh, oh, the, yeah, his yeah. stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, did a lot of Gru drawings. I remember that happening a lot. Yeah. Cool. So you w- sort of went into like the superhero comics sort of thing. Were you always into comics? Yeah. Since I was a little kid, I was really into comics. Uh, something I mostly read. I taught myself to read through comics. Uh, what fascinated you about them? Drawings. Love drawings. You know, my first artist I ever loved was Todd McFarlane, like truly ever loved, you know, where I was where my brain was blown away by that uh, spaghetti webbing and things like that. Nice. How old are you? I'm 36. Okay, so you grew up sort of around the time that Todd McFarlane was getting... Yeah, his his big period, yeah. Yeah, so like early 90s, Marvel, and then did you follow him to Image with Spawn? Yeah, that was was such an important time for me, you know, watching all those things that happened in the Image guys and the excitement about creative-owned arts and all the creative-owned comics that were happening then. Dave Sim was really a huge influence as well. I always liked Dave Sim. So all these guys, Dave Sim, Cerebus, Tom McFarlane mm-hmm. and Spawn, and all the image guys, mm-hmm. did they inspire you and let you know that you could do this yourself? Yeah, I never really thought I couldn't. You know, I always thought 
anybody, I guess essentially anybody could do it. I guess that was the idea. It was exciting to know that you could make your own book and you could own everything. And that was a pretty interesting thing. But then it was years before I ever actually did anything. Right. Know, so. I mean, usually for all of us, it develop. It starts out as like a love. Mm-hmm. I mean, did did you collect on a regular basis? Were you like collecting comics pretty hardcore? Yeah, I had a period for about fifteen years where I was collecting nonstop and got a lot of boxes at home that still need to go through, you know, and cut down. At home, being your actual home or your parents' house? Uh, there's nothing at my parents' house anymore. Good. Yeah. Good. So, <laughs> what was your regular uh, shop? that you would usually frequent. Okay, so we had this place in Godrich called the Book Vault, which was run by this old woman named Grace. And Grace, you know, had a particular idea of what kids should buy, so I wasn't allowed to get anything that uh, said suggested for mature readers on it when I was a kid, so I could never read Sandman from that spot. I'd have to borrow those from a friend if I wanted to read something like that. Oh. She would only let me get certain books. So give me, like, a Grace versus john interaction like would you try to like present <laughs> risky material at the counter and, and yeah i would and yeah there, and there would be yeah. some, some a dialogue yeah like, so what, would, what like, would she say so i would say something like can i i'm gonna get this book i would just put it i would have it like in amongst other things you know i would have like silver surfer smart or you're, you're sort of hiding yeah. it in the pile yeah you right. put it in like that and then she would just take it away she's like you can't buy this this is you're too you're too young for this <laughs> and there was another guy that worked there as well and he was he was younger and, you know, he wasn't cool or anything, but he was younger and I got something off of him once and then I was like, all right, I'll just go buy it whenever he's around. Okay. Did that work? Uh, it worked once. It worked once. And then after that, he's, he's stopped it. He was like, no, I can't do it. I'll get in trouble. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, like the, yeah. this strong ethical Very component strong. carried over into into your work. I mean, different different ethics, but that's a wholly different. Very, yeah. very very strong. Uh, yeah, she. Yeah, points she was, of view. She was uh, an objectivist. Yeah, she believed in her. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So you're going along, and then when did it transfer from I like comics, I like reading them, I like looking at the pictures, I like drawing as a hobby to I want to do this and I want to pursue it in my education. There was no other thought, you know, like it was, it was, you know, catch chickens or, you know, draw. Is that what, like, did your family come from like a country sort of background? Yeah, or, or around that sort of area, you know. Yeah. My parents were both uneducated for the most part. They, you know, they're intelligent people, but they don't come from an educated background, really. Right. They're working class. So, there, you know, there wasn't a lot of like feedback and what i would do in life you know so it was like i'll draw pictures you know? what did they do for like for a living uh my mother was a cook and cleaner and my father's a contractor okay so yeah so that's interesting so john suffering i want you to catch up to this point how did you where did you grow up well my background's not going to be quite as interesting to you because i'm not quite a comics guy okay what what kind of guy are you i'm more of a books guy but like as uh, i grew up in sarnia ontario sarnia okay. uh Shitty little town, characterized by Chemical Valley, smokestacks just going off to infinity. There's a lot of cancer in Sarnia. But yeah, I always wanted to uh, to kind of be a writer. It was just a, a dream that I had and ended up going to U of T, majoring in English. And then uh, I got into journalism after that. And that's uh, currently 
what I spend most of my time on. Well, we we have more in common than you think because because I'm a journalist. I'm a cool. freelancer. I've written for places like Now and yeah. and different. Uh, it's really easy these days, isn't it, to get by? I think online I've managed to make a go of it, but yeah. uh, working for like legacy media is is sort of tough, like the regular newspapers and magazines yeah. and those sorts of things. But I have. It's just few and far between. So. In terms of like the books you were reading and getting into books, I mean, what kind of books are we talking? I really like Latin American fiction. Okay. So like the uh, magical realism stuff. Oh, so like Gabriel Garcia Marquez yeah, totally. and stuff. I love that stuff. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like like uh, classic American literature, like Moby Dick. I've read Moby Dick like five times. I uh, like some of the newer American literature too, like David Foster Wallace, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. So I like kind of like the <clears throat> the epic stuff like that. Have you read James Joyce and like Ulysses and all that? A little bit. Stuff? A little bit. I never quite got into him. I studied him a little bit in university mm-hmm. and it just felt too much like math for yeah. me. Yeah. I don't know. Of course, he's not American, but... In, yeah. in the epic sense is sort of where, where yeah, I was going. Yeah, I think, I, think um, I need to give him more of a chance. Okay. I think it wasn't, I didn't fall into it immediately. Okay. And I kind of just moved on to other stuff. But like, I, I probably should have paid him more attention than I have. What's so math-like about it? Just like, the, it's the language that people find challenging. Right. And like the dialects and stuff like that. And I think in order to sort of decode it, you sort of have to think about it like an equation. Yeah. Is that what you're yeah, getting? Totally. Is that what you're getting Exactly. At? And there's also like a lot of, a lot of symbolism and a lot of repetition and a lot of repetition of symbols. Mm. A lot of things relate to like the Bible and mythology and stuff like that. And you kind of always, yeah, you have to know a lot of stuff to get into them. Yeah. It's not exactly a close reading. It's sort of, you have to sort of take a step back and like read it as a whole in order to figure out what's going on right and not get so invested into like the individual sentences or like those yeah maybe that's what i did yeah yeah i I mean i don't understand it either but that's sort of the strategy that yeah that people employ i wonder about the general appeal for that i guess there is like are the books fun i never read any Joyce at all, but is there any level where it's just fun? Most people that I know who've read it are men and they think about it in sort of like a manly challenge sort of a way. Yeah. Like this is the like most dif- like this is the most difficult book that I've heard about. Yeah. And I'm gonna try to do it just yeah, to say this. just to say that I can or that I did or right. whatever, you know? Like, yeah, like you're saying, like Kilimanjaro. It's like the literary Kilimanjaro or something like that. Ah, a friend of mine just did Kilimanjaro. Oh, nice. Uh. <laughs> cool. So, so yeah, so, so you like the epic tales. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, like classics, like, do you do like Homer and like those sorts of things? Or like... A little know, bit. Canterbury Tales and all that all I that did stuff? in school. Yeah, yeah. Beowulf. Um, Beowulf's kind of epic. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. So then you, you go to UFC for English and then you go into journalism. Yeah. Where have you written before uh, for journalism? Are you are you a broadcast journalist? Or are you a writer uh, I journalist? currently write uh, semi regularly for the Globe. Okay. My main beat is food. Oh, nice! I'm a I food like writer. Food. I promote a lot of consumption in my writing. Nice. I promote meat eating and gluttony and all the things that the salesman hates. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. So I'm a hypocrite. Yeah. So, so in your writing, you're not doing like restaurant reviews. Like, what are you? What are I, you doing? I, I do sometimes. Okay, you do. Yeah, so I work for a number of publications, including a a local 
newspaper called Post City Magazines. I know. And uh, yeah, they get me to review restaurants every now and then. So yeah, they're they do up, that. up in like North York area. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so you do re- review restaurants, but then you're also doing like, are you doing like food commentary? Like food, uh, food commentary, totally. I just wrote an article the other day about uh, eating bugs. Okay, cool. Uh, I have so, I have some bugs with me actually, some edible bugs. I I want to try that hungry. for sure. Yeah, I mean I I I could eat They're anything. I'm one of those people that like Let's I'll try that. anything once for sure. We should, uh, we should eat some bugs. They're Guaranteed. actually they're really good and they're really high in protein. Okay. So yeah, I did like a I did like some commentary on eating bugs. I was basically like, it's about time we start eating bugs. Like it's 2016. Yeah, because soon resources will be scarce yeah. in, our, in our own world. So here we go. I got I brought a bag of uh, mealworms. Mealworms. Okay. Uh, roasted mealworms. Really high in protein. They make a great meal. Are they flavored? Like in terms of No, like... there's nothing on them. Okay. This is just pure mealworm. Okay. So Let's uh see. So I'll go first. Okay. And it's really, it seems really weird at first if you like look at them. But uh, once you put them in your mouth, it's like eating chips or something. Okay, have, cool. yeah. so, Let's, let me there, there's about out. six grams of protein I mean, in that. I've eaten some pretty so weird wormy stuff. looking. They look just like worms. I, I'm going to try to describe like the taste. So it looks kind of like a, a little miniature, you know, well, it looks like an inchworm of some sort. I guess a mealworm. There you go. I mean, if they had some like seasoning that would be great they, they do come they with seasoning do. oh yeah that's that's, a, that's good you just like don't you just went right into it mm. and toss them uh you got you got some on you but <laughs> <laughs> hold on but like it doesn't really taste that weird right no it, it doesn't. actually doesn't taste like a bug at all it's not at all buggy no yeah it's like it's not like riding your bike it's like eating the dregs of chips yeah but the flavor is a little it's a little muted it's not like an overwhelming flavor. No, like like there, it's not. There's nothing about this that I would necessarily write home about. But in terms of texture, it's like eating chip dust or yeah. like the you know yeah. that kind of thing. Of course, there are lots of different kinds of bugs. And probably uh, some of them are weirder than others to eat. Mm. But these are pretty normal, I think. Mm. But yeah, they're not bad. There was, and a- I would eat these in an emergency, like in a, if it was if there was like a if you're in a pinch. If I was in a pinch, or you know, it was one of those like survival earthquake bags. Yeah, I would eat them for sure. Yeah, if you're just stuck with something to eat uh, at the end of the world, eat a bunch. I think of if they were whatever. cheap and available at like any grocery store, I'd probably keep a bag on my shelf all the time just to like. Maybe add to my yogurt or something. That yeah, yeah. Add some extra protein. Gross out kids. They're definitely like, and and they're definitely small. Like it's not like we're eating like grubs. These are like, they're like they're like little pretzel sticks ish things, like but not sticks. that long. They're like yeah. small, really small. They're yeah. virtually indistinguishable. Exactly. I think they would be great as a Halloween snack if you just gave them some cheesy flavoring or something. Right, and and they do come flavored and all the. I think regular chip flavors, like you can get barbecue and you can get them salt and vinegar yeah. and all that Absolutely. sort of stuff. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that that's interesting. Salt and vinegar, huh? and that sort of relates to what we're to- what we're going to be talking about. But you you write about food. You write like I write all kinds of, sort of stuff. Thing. So like I also write about arts for CBC dot ca or C, uh, CBC arts. So uh, CBC dot ca slash arts. Uh, okay, cool, yeah. awesome. And uh, yeah, so it's How not always like that? I. Uh, did an internship at a Toronto Life magazine. Oh. I never wanted to write about food. They got me doing it because it was uh, what they needed their interns to do. And uh, I ended up really liking it. Mm-hmm. 
and just kind of fell into it as a as a beat and then uh ended up writing for uh numerous publications cool did they and then, and then um did they hire you after your internship or did you nope. were you freelancing so no, they don't that? they don't want me working there okay they, they don't mind me as a freelancer but uh they yeah. don't want me there yeah why they, I've, i don't know they've interviewed me three times and they just don't they don't want to hire me okay so you've applied <laughs> for jobs weird. there and, and it's just three times yeah he's yeah. too tall so they're they're kind of like he's close we 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 could use something that he's doing but we just don't want him here where was there a test no just interviews okay do you know why no do i don't you know. have any suspicions no just... i can be a jerk sometimes yeah. I mean, Probably I racism. could say just talk. I could say just talking to you that someone might have the misconception that you come across as sort of having yeah, a, I look a flat, flat ass affect and disposition. I look really serious. I flat right. I'm, a, I'm actually not. I'm actually not that serious. Right. But I just look really serious, and it used to be worse because I used to have a shaved head, and uh, I used to scare people all the time. Everyone thought I was just really mad all the time, but I'm not mad. I'm not mad now. I'm not really, I don't get angry that often. But you're just very emotionally. I'm, I'm very emotional. Balanced. No, I'm very emotional. Oh, okay. So maybe I'm, I try to contain that and, and uh, do a little bit too good of a job at it. I, I guess because just talking to you, it doesn't scream like sense of humor, like fun, fun guy, <laughs> fun, fun, <laughs> like fun guy. Yeah. But I, I think it's not know. true. I am. Okay, fun cool. Okay, I can be funny sometimes. Okay, cool. John thinks I have literally no sense of humor, but he's wrong. Okay, cool. And actually, if he you read some of my articles, like sometimes they're funny. Okay, awesome. Yeah. I, and and I'm interested because I'm interested in, in what you do and your your job and that sort of thing. And and as you loosen up, I'm sure in this conversation, you know, we'll get to see the real John Suffren maybe a little bit more. So you get into journalism. Why do you, why did you go into journalism? I mean, English to journalism, it's not, I wanted stretch, to be but... a novelist okay. and I tried writing a novel and it was the hardest thing in the entire universe. Every day was an uphill battle it, and to stay motivated to yeah. like write. Yeah. It just, I just figured it probably wasn't quite the thing for me if it was that difficult for me. Okay. So I started thinking, uh, I still want to write. I still like writing, but I need to find a, a more uh, economically feasible way of doing it, especially if I was never going to finish a novel. That's kind of exactly how I got into journalism, because yeah. except it happened to me w earlier, because in grade 11, we had a thing called co-op where you do like work experience and you, you're, you're doing sort of three weeks of work experience and then you're doing like social studies and English all day for one semester. And then you do three weeks at another work experience, right? So at that point, the career counselor was like, you know, what do you want to do for your work experience? And I already wrote during the summer, like I wrote novels just like you were doing, like yeah. those short stories, because as a person with a disability, uh, I got a computer in the class all the time to like help with my work and stuff. But during the summer, they'd give it to you like as something you could use at your house in the summer. So what else am I going to do? But write because I have this computer and I might as well use it the whole time. So I wrote stories and I said to the guy, you know, I write these stories fictional and I like writing, but I recognize that I'm not going to be able to make a consistent living yeah. just writing one book. So how can I write but still make a consistent living writing. And he said, we have this community newspaper. You should intern at the Peace Arch News. And then I did. And then I thought, 
true stories and interviewing people and talking to them and not having to know a lot about something initially and like learning from other people and asking the questions was like really, really attractive to me. And the mm. whole, you know, truth is stranger than fiction thing was yeah. really what hooked me. I mean, what hooked you in, into, into journalism? I loved meeting new people and uh, just constantly learning new things. And uh, I really liked that when I wrote articles, uh, it was just all provided for me. Okay. So I guess I was I, I was lazy it's because I was lazy. <laughs> That's why I liked it. Yeah. It is because when you're writing when you're writing fiction, you're like literally just fabricating. It's right. Funny, but that's you not have a joke, to though. you have to come up with stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it's kind of true because in journalism, you don't have to know anything because you're asking the questions. Yeah, totally. So people just like, tell you. You, you stuff. can just you can be an idiot, right? And the bigger idiot you are, the more uh, comfortable. Are you? What are you doing? The more comfortable <laughs> your interview subject is. Exactly. And then you end up getting different information out of them and and the funny thing is is like the more questions you ask and the less assumptions you make and the less you try to like show your interview subject that like you know what you're talking about the better stuff you get from them so it makes for like a better article because if you don't make any assumptions and you don't assume knowledge that you don't actually have and you just ask them you get better information Mm -hmm. totally yeah so Okay, so you're doing the journalism thing. You're still doing it, right? Yep. Okay, and then and then you're doing the art thing. Mm-hmm. What? Where did you end up working af- after uh, your schooling and stuff for for art and that kind of thing? Oh God, I mean, I've had so many jobs, quite a few, but mostly, you know, I was a sculptor, a sculpture assistant for a while. I worked in nightclubs for a long time, um, and then eventually, I found myself in the animation industry, mostly 3D animation, video games. So. You know, that's mostly what I do for the most part is uh, art direct video games. Cool. What, like that. what stuff have you worked on? Mostly really crappy video games. Stuff that you probably have heard of, like iCarly 2. I call the... I join the click. Oh, I know iCarly. That's like the Disney Channel show, It's a Disney right? Channel show. And they made a video game, I guess? Yeah, they made a really, really, really great video game called iCarly 2. Okay. I join the click. It was actually on Reddit a little while ago because there's a giant bin of them that was left over because there was so many. That was the first video game I ever worked on. Okay. Was, I was a 3D artist on it and made a bunch of made a bunch of assets for that, which was really fun. That was several years ago now. And then lots of other stuff, something for um, apps, mobile apps, things like that, you know, games for your games for your phone, stuff for uh, doozers, which you might remember from might remember from Fraggle Rock. Yeah, those are like the ones in the hard hats, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I made a bunch of games for them. Awesome. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Jim that, Henson. That, you know. that actually was cool. I, I enjoyed that one. Yeah, That yeah. was a fun one, yeah. My my brother's actually a 3D animator. Oh, yeah? Uh, he works in... He worked on like Barbie movies for a long time. Right like on. direct-to-video Barbie movies. But yeah. now he's doing uh, the animation for the live-action Beauty and the Beast uh, with okay. Emma Watson. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right for on. Sure. You're still doing sort of an artistic thing. Are you still drawing and making comics on the side, or I'm taking a break right now uh, from making comics necessarily. Okay, okay, right now. But like, yeah. as you're coming up, are you also like self-publishing stuff, or are you just doing? He's, he's not taking a total break because we are kind of working on a salesman too. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, we're working on a salesman. So too, that's what I'm... we have like a script, and he's kind of working on it with me. Oh, cool. So it's not like a break, break. Okay, okay. Yeah. So what led you to to the salesman? Did you meet each other first? 
Yeah, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. We used to work together and we were... Our ex-girlfriends were friends. Yeah. Okay. That's how we met. When through was our, this? Through our ex-girlfriends. Like, when did like, A long meet? time ago, like 10 years, 10 years ago. Yeah, 2003. Yeah, something 2003. like that. 2003. So your, your ex-girlfriends were like high school friends? They were, they were university friends. University friends. Yeah. And then you guys would sort of like be at every yeah. party. Oh, we yeah, we'd see each other around. We'd yeah. see each other all around. We started playing Magic together. And then we started playing uh, you know, D&D together. That's mostly how it all came together. Really? You're, you're into like Magic and D&D and stuff? Yeah, not not so much D and D anymore. I was a dungeon master when I played with. Uh, with John. Yeah, there's a lot of dungeon but, mastering. Uh, cool, but uh, I play magic. Yeah, I love it. So you have a little geek in you. What is it about? I have a lot of geek in me. A I'm lot like, of geek. Yeah. Okay. I'm not cool at all. Okay, so I know I have nice hair. Yeah. That's it. Okay, so ma- so magic, and and D and D, and then what else? Video games. Okay. I'm playing Dark Souls like right now. Well, not right now, but. I'm playing Dark Souls. Like, when I go home tonight, I'm going to play it and die a whole lot of times. That's awesome. <laughs> that's, that's so good. I, I'm, I'm happy for you with that one. Uh, that's good. So good. Your your geek cred is fir- is firmly established. Great. And then, do you sort of bond over your mutual geekiness? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess so. That's probably the best way to put it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You, you, you sort of see each other around, and then you strike up a conversation, and it's like, oh... I'm into the same things that you're kind of into. Yeah. You know, we generally hang out and drink a lot of beer and play video games. Yeah, we drank a lot back then. Drinking a lot, yeah. Okay. Mostly, uh, you know, we had this We had this thing. I don't know when we actually just started really hanging out a lot. It just sort of happened naturally, I suppose. But D&D was one of these periods where we started doing it a lot. We used to always get together once a week. Was it once a month, I guess, or every two weeks or something? It was every week for a while. Jesus, we were really going at it. Yeah. You know, I had this awesome character who was like a wizard transvestite <laughs> that, uh, you know, would really, well, he was really awesome. He was, he, he would try to have sex with the other characters in the party. Yeah. Nice. He was good. I got laid all the time. And, I don't think uh, it actually ever worked. No, it didn't work once. <laughs> but there was, uh, there was a lot of fun. We were always, someone would always get really drunk and, uh, it was a really fun experience. You know, our girlfriends really didn't like the D and D. I remember them finding it. They thought it was kind of gross. So they would go out and hang out, and you guys would stay home and play D anD. d Yeah, I think yeah. like they each gave us one shot of doing it at the house while they were there. Yeah, yeah. and then after they saw it once, they were like, "Okay, that's not happening." <laughs> we're again. not doing it. Yeah, something. my girlfriend doesn't really like the stuff that I'm into either. Like, she, <laughs> she's tried with the comics. She gave it a valiant effort. Yeah, I got her into. I into think valiant comics. I I should have given her Valiant Comics. That would have been good. But I I was never into Valiant Comics. Just now, nobody is. Yeah. So I don't know. But um, I I did get her into like uh, Jessica Jones, and she liked Jessica Jones. Like of all the well, the show, shows, yeah. I haven't seen Jessica that show. Jones. She she really responded to. So so I have won a little bit in the in the battle. For... You got a little bit. You can watch Jessica Jones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but I but I know what that's like. It's like a long way of saying that I know what that's like. Yeah, so we met, you know, years ago and then when the when I was making the book. So I started making the book 2010. So how did this idea come to you? All right, well, for the salesman. I was just sitting down and I was hanging out with my brother in his basement and uh writing up some stories. I would just write I would just draw stories pretty quick, really rough things. And then I wanted to work on a webcomic of some sort. I want to work on some sort of book. And I came up with the idea for The Salesman, which was mostly about 
kind of like a very, uh, it would be a thing that would sort of start off as being incredibly like, I don't know, a very filmic kind of experience. So that was basically how it started. It kind of sounds a little random, but that's exactly how I was thinking about it. And then eventually it became a webcomic for a while. And it was, it you know, I worked on it for about a year and a half, a very long time. And I just wanted to end it. I was like, let's just end this thing. It's going on for a very long time. Ended the story. Wasn't happy how with long, it at all. How long was it going for? How long of the, was How many pages was it? Yeah, or? you said it was going for a very long time. Well, the whole thing, like doing the webcomic thing, takes a lot of effort. Effort, you know? okay. Every week you're married to that page. Yeah, you know? so, so as a person who was sort of, I mean, you loved comics, you went to school for art, but you were doing like 3D animation. What got you into doing like comics in your off time again? Ah, self-expression, you know, the idea of just making something, really nothing aside from just self-expression, you know? Creating something that was, you know, I had things I wanted to say about families and people, and and uh, I wanted to make something that was really fun, you know, something that I wasn't seeing in general. So what was the early uh, The Salesman about, like the web, the web version of it? Essentially, it's the same as it is right now, plot-wise. Okay, explain what the plot is. It's a dystopian future, and there is a a salesman that goes door to door, and he encounters a family. Essentially, that's the base plot of the story. Uh, eventually, when John came on years later, we ended up warping that and creating more of a deeper narrative about what was happening. Yeah, that deeper narrative definitely shines through. It becomes a little more political in terms of the ethics of consumption and, mm-hmm. and eating and and i could see really radical members of you know sort of uh, militant vegan groups really right. really digging really digging this kind yeah of thing. veganism is or, a large part of it yeah. you know or, or those sorts of things like the animal well wel- there is bug animal welfare it, the, the vegans like, wouldn't like that yeah yeah but but they should because bugs are vegan right right but they but, are but animal welfare groups you know <laughs> those sorts of things <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what I found really fascinating. How did uh, John Suffren get involved? A friend of mine, the uh, Adam Jack, who runs Underbelly Comics, okay, uh, approached me about publishing the work. He had been reading it online, and and I was had been done it for a, a year, and I really didn't want to go back to it because I really I had my fill of working on it, and I was happy to be done. And then. Truth be told, I was embarrassed by what had happened for years and years and years. I always wanted to make a comic. Right. I had read so many comics. I was such a fan of comics, and I always thought I had good taste, you know. And then when it came to actually doing a book, I found that there was a lot of things I didn't have under my belt that were good was good enough yet, and I was always embarrassed by my writing. I was always embarrassed by all of that stuff. So when I was working on it, I was very unhappy with what I was producing. So, and you said that there were a lot of things you weren't good enough at yet. Like, what yeah, were those I things? I didn't think I was very good at, I don't like writing very much. Okay. I hate the nitty gritty of writing. I find it tedious. It's not my, it's not my forte. So, you know, the salesman had a Kickstarter, which is essentially how um, Adam Jacks and Underbelly Comics starts off their promotions for a book, to create a book. It got the Kickstarter. I was very happy about that. And he, Adam Jack was under the assumption that I was basically going to color the book that I had right now and then just send it out. Do a hardcover, right? Do a hardcover. In the end, and then, I, you know, and I was, I wanted to change a page or two. And then in the end, it was just, it wasn't working out again. So I was just talking to John about my problems. I was like, you know, what do you think of, I, I, I don't like this, I don't like that. And he gave me some suggestions. And then 
I was like, would you be interested in helping me? And he said, yes, which I was really surprised about. Okay, so in that description, and, and I appreciate it, you, you sort of glossed over a lot of stuff in terms <laughs> of the Kickstarter. Like, okay, so so Adam Jack approaches you and goes, I've been reading your book. I dig it. I want to I publish it. Mm-hmm. Let's put it on a Kickstarter and raise some money to, to publish it. Yeah. But then you said it didn't work out. No, it did work out, but I wasn't happy with how the book was. I didn't wasn't happy with what the book even was already. Okay, so that we were well, going I think, to I think what, what he's saying you, not- you wanted to try to redo it and make it better when it was when uh, Underbelly went to publish it. Oh. He wanted to improve it, so he was uh, stressing over that. Okay, over how yeah. to improve it. What did you not like about it? I didn't like the pacing. I didn't like the writing and jet the dialogue. I didn't like the characterization of the salesman. I didn't like. Uh, uh, I can say what I didn't like about it. Okay, yeah. I actually I thought there was a ton of cool stuff going on, but you had this salesman, and um, there was really no uh, sense of why he was doing what he was doing. It was just kind of no this guy. He knew nothing about him whatsoever, yeah. and he encounters this family and kills them. And uh, you're never rooting for anyone the entire time. There's really. Uh, I think the story arc was a little flat. Why did yeah, you? The story arc was flat. Why did you want him to encounter this family and kill him, kill them, initially? Uh, I think initially I wanted the family to die as a revenge against the concept of the nuclear family. I was interested in this idea of the people that we are as North Americans might be evil, might be in themselves a terrible people. And I wanted to, in a way, to have a have a twist where you would initially believe that this character that we're following is doing something horrendous, and then you realize that the people that had died were actually horrendous. Um, uh, I was interested in that. Was he more of a door to door salesman in the original version? Yeah, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. It was really. It wasn't more of, much about him. The original salesman was really more of a. It was a moody thing, and it was really more about. I imagine music happening really more of like an animation in a lot of ways, in which case it would work more, which it really does. As a short film, kind of. As a short film with an animated short film, yeah. Did it still take place in space? And like, was it still... No, a lot of that stuff came... A lot of that stuff came... Did come later on. Okay, okay. There's no space in the first one. So the first one, he's literally a door-to-door salesman that comes to a family's door... And kills them. Yeah. And then you're like, ugh, disgusting. But then you find out that the family is, is disgusting. Is disgusting. Yeah. So it was sort of a flip of that. And that's essentially it, which is, it's essentially like, and I guess in the end, it's the same story as like the first section of, of That Yellow Bastard or something like that. Yeah. One of the things that I found interesting about what you said is like, you talked about how like you wanted to sort of make a statement against the nuclear family. Yeah. Why? I was uh, angry. About... Well, Things I wanted in life that I didn't end up getting. Part of the way I dealt with it was by just sort of creating violent characters that would uh, enact this sort of like uh, this dream world that I had created. Was this anger against your own family or was this this anger no, no, yourself not in general? Uh, not against myself either. Just about concepts that I had about what it was to be have a nuclear family. What were those? You know, I always want. I always dreamed that I was going to have that at some point in my life. And at that point in my life, I thought I'd already be there, and that and I didn't because of circumstances. And that I found to be horrendous, and I was really going through hell. 
So circumstances being that like relationships didn't work out. Yeah, or exactly. Things, things like, like that. that. Okay. Things like that. You know, so I was just creating these this environment and these people that were all these tensions could come out and and really play themselves out. Mm. So that's essentially what became the nugget of what would eventually become what we have today's for the salesman is just a lot of these ideas that were kind of like rolling around and they were kind of general ideas, you know, they were kind of like scenes and places, uh, but they were kind of absurd, you know, right. They all had absurd connections that didn't quite work. So the first salesman comes out, it was the, the Kickstarter was successful, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Did, did, and how much past your goal? Like you, you met your goal. It was we met our goal. I wouldn't say it was super successful. It would have been amazing if it was, but it was, it made its goal. Okay. It made its goal. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then it comes out, it's published, right? By Underbelly. Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of unhappy with it and you sort of want to revisit it. No. Okay. So yeah, we're, we're really far away from okay. how it happened. So that was the initial thing. Okay. So we got our Kickstarter, and then Adam Jack said, okay, let's publish it. You got you got a month. Let's publish it in a month. Okay. And then I started working on it and was like, you know what? It's going to take a lot longer than a month. So in the end, John Suffern and I, when John Suffern came in at that point, and we started working on it, and I think nine months later, we pretty completely redid the book, pretty much from top to bottom, using different sections of it. Pretty much doubled it in length. And it became what it is today. So, and this whole time was Adam Jack being like, "Where's this book?" Like, yeah, he was. What What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah. And what? When did you come in? Like, what is what is the timeline of this? Like, what year sort of did you come in? And and you started like I think we started last last year, like uh, maybe January of last year, okay, or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and, and that's uh, when the he... ki- the Kickstarter had the goal had been met. Right. John knew that he was going to publish this new salesman, and he wanted to make it a little bit better. And we were talking on the phone one day about what could possibly be done to improve it. And uh, I think I think I was the one who suggested rewriting it. I think it just came out of nowhere because I'd never thought of writing a comic before. I'd never really had uh, those kind of inclinations. And then talking with John, it just like just spont- total spontaneity. I was just like, well, how about I try rewriting it? And he's immediately like, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Him and I have it, uh, like, as long as we've known each other, I've always kind of bantered creative ideas with each other and anytime i was like working on a novel or a story or something i'd always tell him what i was working on and i'd always find i always found him very inspiring mm-hmm. he'd always say things that got my creative juices flowing i guess oh cool. and often i would look at his paintings and find inspiration in his paintings as well what kinds of things did he paint i think there's one there's one painting where there was like uh, this guy playing the saw Okay. And he was like, a, like it was a fiddle or something. Yeah. And he's like uh, dancing around uh, a bunch of heads, mm-hmm. like on uh, impaled on sticks. Mm-hmm. Right. And the and, heads uh, are singing. So the, the idea was a magical saw that brought staked heads back to life. Wow. And I, yeah. Somehow I saw this painting and then uh, on this on this stupid fantasy novel I was working on, I like ended up having saw players in the in the story and like heads on stakes. Like for some reason. Just seeing John's art, just uh, it really resonated with me. Yeah, you. totally cool. So we already knew, like, uh, we had respect for each other creatively. So I think, uh, oh yeah, like John is a fantastic writer, and not only that, he complimented uh, what I was bad at. So cool, yeah. L- like the the tedium of writing and 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 that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and the the focus on making things uh, quite understandable. You know, I would have a tendency, like in painting pictures versus narratives, you could create absurdities that would befit uh, an interesting 
a single image that would create firing moments in a person's mind where they'd be like, uh, these two elements have very disparate elements and they don't really work together, but put together, they somehow make sense. But then if you were to write a story about how these things would come together, it would be very confusing sometimes. Mm. Who are these people? What do they do? So when John and I came together to write the book, there were a lot of those elements tied together in the salesman initially. So we just sort of like tried to take out what wasn't working, put things that were working, rewrite the narrative in some ways. So suffering provided like the connective tissue. In a lot of ways, yeah. In terms of like, how can we take these scenes that are good and connect them into like a cohesive whole story, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. And you brought him on because you knew about his like, you were friends, but you also knew about his writing expertise. He's he's a good writer. Yeah. 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 There's no, there's no reason why. Nice. Was it weird for you to be doing a comic? Like, it seems like a bit of a departure. It felt weird for a very short amount of time. Okay. And uh, I was saying earlier how I tried writing a novel and it was like the most difficult thing in the entire world. And then when it actually came down to um, doing the comic and writing kind of a script, rather than having to describe every single thing that was happening, I really, I felt uh, like a weight off my shoulders. Hmm. It was still more difficult than journalistic writing for sure. Because I was, still, I was still um, staring at a blank page, like no notes to draw from, no uh, interviews to pull from. I, I did have John's drawings, which helped. And so I would flip through and kind of try to write according to the drawings. And that helped a lot. But then we started creating new scenes where there were no drawings. And that was hard because there was literally nothing to draw from. Mm-hmm. And that was, all, that was always my issue in uh, trying to write fiction, was creating something from nothing. I found that only having to write dialogue and having to write minimal uh, descriptions about what was happening in the scene helped me just to push through it and to do it. And it was it was way easier for me to do a comic than to do uh to do fiction. So you guys really complemented each other because both of you are totally struggling at different aspects yeah. of your creative process. We complement each other in, in multiple ways because uh my writing was was really serious for the salesman. He would like draw funny drawings to go along with the with the series writing. That was it was uh we were complementary in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and it seems like you eased each other's struggles of the different aspects of the creative process that you were having, sure. that you were having problems yeah. with. John's also great at uh, creating something from nothing. Like he's he did paintings where you right. have a blank canvas and create stuff. And he did he did all of the heavy lifting with the salesman. Like he, I always compare it to like a sandcastle. Like he kind of like made the the general sand pile. He did the digging and put the pile together. Mm. Well, I just came in and kind of just chiseled away at it and added little details. Added the details. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So tell me about the current salesman in terms of adding that political spin, the sort of meat yeah. of the story, the personality of the salesman. How did you come up with that kind of stuff? I guess the big thing for me when I started thinking about rewriting was um, the post-apocalypse scenario and thinking about what it would actually be like, Mm -hmm. what it would actually feel like to be in that situation. And I started thinking about uh, also why would a guy in this this scenario be going door-to-door selling books and trying to solve those questions, you know. Yeah, you did a lot early on about asking questions about uh, initially why would the world be the way it is, what caused it, and then what would be making him do what he was doing? 
And in the original, he was already, it was already post-apocalyptic, and he was already sailing books door-to-door? Yeah. Okay. It wasn't as bleak. Okay. The apocalyptic world wasn't as bleak. For example, there was like a, a scene where the salesman's walking, and he, he walks past like a farmer with a pig. And I looked at that, and I was like, if this is actually post-apocalypse, like, you're not going to see farmers with pigs anywhere. Right. There's probably not going to be a lot of food at all. Yeah, that's when that started to happen. The story started to take more shape and you decided on little things about, like, the world has to be way bleaker. We have to remove all semblance of anything pleasant. Any, like, little food bits here and there have to go. And that, that really took shape at yeah. that point. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, trying to figure out why on earth a guy would ever be selling books. That was a, a, big, uh, a big element of developing what the salesman was. And what they become is sort of like relics of a past knowledge. Mm -hmm. But they're also his entryway into other people's lives because really what he's doing is he's he's hunting for people that have more than they should. Exactly. So what he's doing, and and I'm just going to explain this to to the listeners, is he's using the books as a way to sort of figure out if these are people that are living off of the fat of the land and, and, and living too high for their station, and the books are just sort of a way for him to sort of peek into their lives. Exactly. The, and the dis- salesman shtick is a, mm-hmm. is a ruse. Yeah. He's trying to... He's peek, not actually a salesman. He's not actually a salesman. He's trying to peek into their lives so that he can assess whether he needs to kill these people for too much indulgence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now I want to get into the politics of that. Because when I read it, I found it unsettling. And you're supposed to, right? You're supposed to wrestle with these with yeah. these ideas, right? So why did we get into his sort of ideology that's so extreme about I'm going to be judge, jury, and executioner for how people are living and I'm going to be the one who decides like what the balance is in terms of consumption there's already so little to go around yeah i guess that that was just uh, a way of making sense of of the original salesman yeah like a lot of it had to do in some ways with the pache in which the book originally was put together and it was a way in which you can make sense of his extreme attitude uh as we found making him an extremist in some ways was just one of the simplest ways of dealing with his character so then we just embraced it at a certain point, because we did struggle with motivation, where why he was coming up with the ideas and what his ideas were. And then once we had settled upon the idea of him being uh, an extremist, then things sort of made sense, and we could deal with the idea of a person who is an extremist in a lot of ways. Did his motivation, when, when John Suffren suggested it, did, did it make you uncomfortable? No, not at all. Okay. In general... Well, in some ways, we wanted to, like, I feel like the character in the book does not reflect our own opinions. Okay. I would say, out of John and I, probably the character that reflects our opinions the most is probably uh, Mon Mula, <clears throat> who is the the uh, benevolent pig leader. Right. At the end. At the end. And I would say her perspective probably mirrors our own ideology in general, about how, at least at my own, about how I think about the world and as people should, you know, be kind to one another and forgive one another. And basically, the salesman's perspective is the exact opposite of that. Um, his perspective is one of of pain and of of 
making people suffer for what they've done in life. I do. I see a lot of myself in the salesman, I have to admit. Okay. I, I have the tendency to, uh, to believe I know what's right and wrong, and I kind of push forward uh, confidently with that. And that's exactly what the salesman's doing. Mm-hmm. And I do tend to see uh, the morality of day-to-day interactions. I tend to see them in a, in a kind of black and white way. Mm-hmm. And when I'm interacting with people, I think like, oh, that was bad, what you just did, or that was good. Yeah. And Do uh, you often, who, when you're interacting with people or like you end up in a debate with them, do you find that you sort of overstep in terms of <laughs> consideration of their feelings? Probably. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, I, I just got into a little um, argument with uh, John's girlfriend the other day. Yeah. That's true. She kicked me out of the house. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm asking because I do that too. Like I have an opinion. I, I, I believe in, in right and wrong. But then when you're talking to your girlfriend about it, you sort of feel like you're in a debate and you want to be right. But then you forget about the feelings and that's sort of what matters so it's like you might be right but you're not going to maintain your 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 relationship yeah right so that's sort of what i'm learning in yeah. that kind of thing so that's why i asked you yeah, i feel like for, i feel like for me i I relate to the salesman more than than mon Mula, okay. but i feel like mon Mula is like uh what i would like to be like yeah she's an idealistic character yeah it'd be interesting if mon Mula was the person that you think you are, but your actions actually reflect the salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be interesting. Yeah, probably. They probably r- sit on a sliding scale of two perspectives. Yeah. Interesting. So, so let's, but let's get into the food aspect because in order to talk about Manuela and who she is and what, what's going on, we have to get into that this, in this particular story, the overindulgence stems from meat that, you know, these people are consuming mm-hmm. and no one has a lot of meat in general society. So the salesman sort of wants to balance it out. And these meats are coming from, we find out, these these pig people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they're an alien race of uh, yeah. anthropomorphic pigs. Mm-hmm. So when you say the pig leader, uh, Monwula... I just, you know, that she's like the leader of this race of pigs that are captured and are living in uh, these humans' basement so that they can basically go down and, you know, butcher them when they want to and, and, eat, and eat them kind of thing, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. When you talked about Manuela before, you didn't really explain her morality. What, what is uh, Manuela's morality that is so close to your own? Uh, Manuela is... She sort of uh, exists in some sort of fictional. So like a bu- she's like a Buddha in she's a way, a right? She's a Buddhist. She's a Buddha. She's like a Bodhisattva, in a in sort of like a in a really extreme fantasy sense. You know, she doesn't. You know, she could actually project her consciousness. She can see into the soul of a person. She can speak with spirits and things like that. She can really connect with someone else in a in a very deep way. And it seems like she knows. That the capture is coming, like she can see into the future. Yeah, yes, and she can she, see in the future. And she's an oracle. That's yeah. the idea. Yeah. yeah, okay. She represents sort of a, a pragmatic idealism, I suppose. Her idealism is based on a philosophy of love, while the salesman deals with sort of a pragmatic realism. 
and that uh, he sees nothing in the world that love could ever help. It's very Steve Ditko, Ayn Rand. Uh, and in that re- sense, yeah. Objectivism, sort of. Yeah, there is. We did talk about Ayn Rand a bit while we were making it. John was just kind of getting introduced to her, and I was reading some stuff a long time ago. I don't really think much of her as a writer. But she does definitely does have a lot of uh, interesting takes on the idea of, uh, of having a philosophical perspective and, and holding on to it and making it your entire... It's almost taboo to say these days. Yeah. That you, that you like, like anything Rand. about Ayn Rand at all. Ayn Rand's not popular. I like the Steve, the Steve Ditko example is a really great example, you know? That, what is the name? The card or whatever is that guy's name Mr. Again? A. Mr. A, right. He would hand there out the There is black and there yeah. is white and right. there is nothing in between. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, okay, in that sense, the salesman has a perspective that is childish in a lot of ways. It's naive. He, he thinks the world's only one way, you know, and uh, he wants to make sure everybody else is slammed into that perspective. So he's very much a classic superhero in a lot of sense. Batman's very similar. Batman's very similar, except he doesn't he doesn't have the violence to go to go with it. That's like super extreme. Like he won't kill people or or things like or things like that. Yeah, it's always it's always the decision that heroes make that uh, of how far they're going to go. Yeah, and that's usually at the level of whatever we consider to be the most heinous, the most heinous crimes of our own time. And in this sense, I guess in the salesman, we've created a, a perspective that's more heinous. Um, it is pretty heinous. Yeah, yeah. but I, but I, it's sort of an interesting way to create a comic because you already have a framework that you've decided you have to sort of keep because you're committed because you have this Kickstarter and people are kind of expecting the yeah, book that they were yeah. sold. So you already have a scene at the end where you have to justify. This heinous, this like heinous violence at the yeah. end, and you have to, you also have to justify on the other end why he's the sales, why he's a door to door salesman, yeah. and why he kills the people. So it's interesting because most people they create a comic and and they create the framework as they go along, but you had to fit your new ideas into a framework that was already there. I'd say it's pretty close to being in like a storyboarding room. It's interesting because it's like. Whatever your personal take is, and you've both said that, like, your morality, I mean, for you, it's similar to the salesman, but for you, it's not. I find it a little bit more, uh, like, I can identify with you more as people who had to fit these new ideas into this framework than I could if you just, if you just created it out of whole cloth, because I'd be wondering, like, do these people like believe this sort of this sort of thing that they're doing, or is it just a fictional thing? It is a thing always for people to believe right. that the artist believes the philosophy. Right. You know, it's sort of like music. We like musicians more if they represent the music that they make. Right, right, right. Rather than the just being interesting ideas. Or hate them. Or hate them. Depending on how we as readers view the world. You know? And I and I could see the salesman being controversial in that way. Like it would be very divisive in terms of the readership. Yeah, what, there there are hot button ideas. What it. has the feedback been for the people that have read it so far? Have you gotten it's any? It's been pretty positive as far as I can tell. Okay. I'm always suspicious though. I always think people are lying to me when they tell me they like it. Okay. I don't know. I'm maybe that's just cuz I'm insecure. <laughs> okay. Which I am. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh my father hated it, but it's it's cuz he didn't uh he couldn't understand it right off the bat because there's a bit of slang right like they call guns nines and stuff like that 
Right. And there's a reference to this uh, this governing militia called the government. Right. And so he was reading it. It's spe- government spelled with a U is a kind of a jokey reference to the government nightclub. Nightclub, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my dad was reading it. And he's like, "Why is there? Why does it have a U in it? Why? What are nines? I don't understand." So he got bogged down in his yeah, exactly dislike of the yeah. details. Yeah. He didn't really dislike it for what was happening. I think I think he just didn't really he couldn't figure out what was happening because he couldn't get over the, the yeah. small details. So the um his reaction was was the most negative that I've had. A couple of my friends uh, bought it for me and then just didn't say anything at all. Mm. Anyone who's ever got back said that uh, that they liked it. And, I've, and there was some really positive feedback, too, like from uh, Ty Templeton. Ty Templeton said really, really nice stuff, which was great because he's great. That was huge. You know. What Actually, did he say? Uh, he said it was... He said he loved every page, every line. Yeah. He said he loved everything about it, basically. It nice. That's he awesome. Didn't, he didn't like the dick shot. That was the only thing he didn't like. Oh yeah, the penetration he didn't shot. Like the penetration shot. Because yeah. there's a full sex scene in there. Yeah, he didn't like that. Which is, he's allowed to not like it. You know, <laughs> right. It's fine. It's long. Right, and you leave it on a bit of a. There's always the the reader that wants resolution. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get resolution if if you read this. You're gonna like it. It it's left on a sort of. Uh, like you just were witness to like a heinous crime, right? Mm-hmm. Grace at the comic shop would not would not appreciate. Yeah, this we, book. she wouldn't have sold it to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It was sort of like take this, Grace. Yeah, yeah. take it and shove it. Did that at all influence <laughs> you? Like you knew you wanted to do something more extreme because you never got to read. <laughs> yeah, that, I was extreme. Yeah, comics? I just had her flashes of her in my mind, right? Getting revenge? No, not at all. Okay. Uh, I like I like comics that that are a little are interesting. Like I don't really like superhero comics all that much. I used to read them when I was a kid, but kind of got over that years ago. You know, for the most part, I wanted to make something that was kind of it was ballsy, I guess. That would piss people off. Um, I don't know if it has. I don't know if uh, I, I tend to think kind of what Kurt Vonnegut said most of the time: works of art are no more than like a cupcake, really. Right. You know, it's. Uh, you might be pissed off in the moment, but you get over it. It's it's they're just ideas, you yeah. know. It's not yeah. like they're, uh, but ideas do shake people. So you know, if it does, that's cool. But otherwise, it's. Uh, I didn't want to make a superhero that, a superhero book, which it essentially is. It's a superhero book in a lot of ways. The salesman's a kind of an anti superhero in a lot of ways, but that's essentially what he is. He he still falls prey to that kind of genre. But I really wanted to do something that was kind of outside of that. I didn't want to do, like, as, you know, Mobius would call superheroes, like, kind of dickless. You know, I didn't want to make a dickless superhero. Right. Yeah. He had to have some heft. He had to have some heft. He had to have some, a bad background, you know. I wanted to do a character that, and John and I, too, I think we want to work with a character that was interesting, that had real problems. But then you also may fall into the whole like anti-hero trope i mean the time you grew up with comics you know this like with the tom mcfarland stuff like back in the day that was as a reaction to you know watchmen and the dark knight and that kind of thing there were all these comics that were like violence and how extreme can we push it and more violence and more sex and more things like that right And this is sort of, if you read it a particular way, I, I think in that I don't mind tropes, I don't mind cliches. Yeah. yeah, actually, that was one of the first things I told John when we were rewriting. I was like, we need to put some cliches in there. Right, gives people something to hold on to. 
And it's a comic book, too. Yeah. Comics are, yeah. that's what they are. Yeah. In a lot of ways, The Salesman's like a grindhouse book. And that was a, for a first book that I ever did. And, you know, we're hoping to do more. Uh, and we will do more. It was important to do something that was bad. I wanted to do something that was... B-movie level. B-movie level that was get all of the... Allowed us to just do anything and not worry about whether or not it was classy or or uh, in good taste. Right. So as it being a B-movie, like people aren't really supposed to take it seriously. It's supposed to be a little bit in jest, right? Yeah, a little bit in jest. There's still some winking going on. But for the most part, it's, it's more like a... Uh, exploitation, you know, a general black exploitation, or or Aussie exploitation, or right. all of that. In stuff. this case, like pig exploitation. Pig exploitation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, John Suffren, I wanted to talk to you about like because there's a lot of like food politics. Yeah. In this book, was your background as like a food journalist? Did that inform? It, it had that to have. kind of thing. It had to have. Right. But also there was like. A lot of food in it in the first version, anyway. Okay. So there, you had cookbooks. He or in the original version, he was selling cookbooks. Okay. And also, this family that he slaughters was uh, making elaborate meals out of uh, pig people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So food factored heavily into it, anyway. Okay. And then, I guess the fact that I write about food and and, and am obsessed with it and think about it all the time, I probably just inadvertently added more food stuff. Without even thinking about it. What are your own personal food philosophy? You know, I'm re- I'm not a very political person. Okay. I find it difficult to commit to uh, beliefs. You were a vegetarian for a long time. I was I was a pescatarian for a while, so I was a vegetarian, but I still ate fish. Okay. And now I eat anything and everything. Okay. Part Why of that part of that is because uh, I'm writing about it, and I have to taste everything in order to write about it. Right. And that's that's kind of like uh, my excuse for not having to commit to any sort of uh, philosophy with regards to food. That's what I always fall back on is that I'm a, I'm a food writer. I need to be open to eating anything and everything because I have to cover it. Open and objective about food particularly. Yeah. So it, again, it's my way of being lazy. I don't have to, I don't think about what I eat as much as I should. There's a lot of guilt around eating. Yeah, and if which, I, which comes across in this book. Yeah, if I wasn't a food writer, if I couldn't say to myself, like, I have to eat everything for my job, if I didn't have that to fall back on, I would drive myself a little bit crazy trying to think about the ethics of eating because it's it's a pretty crazy thing. I mean, any- eating is crazy. Consumption, right? Eating, just eating anything. Any, everything we put into our bodies, besides water, has been a living thing at some point. Right. It's cells. You're, you're taking living cells. You're chewing them up and you're putting them in you and that's fueling you to continue living. Right. Every day we're stuffing living and dead things. They're all reality. Living and, and once living things into ourselves. So it's a level of dominance that you can't get around, that, that you really can't get around. Well, I don't know. Are we supposed to be, are we, as humans, should we find a way of... Uh, of eating in a way that's the least cruel, that, that incurs the Jane least is. amount of cruelty. That's Should what the Janes do. Should we? I don't know. If I wasn't a food writer, that would be I would be questioning that all the time. Well, but you were a pescatarian. 
Yeah, so, so I did like I did, did kind of commit kind to something, of but even that's hypocritical too. Like I, I look back, why, and I look back, and I was like, "Why did I eat fish? Like why? You know, why pick on fish? Yeah, uh, they're just." And then sometimes I think situation. like, "Oh, maybe uh, it's speciesism to to not eat a particular kind of anything." Yeah, you should eat humans as well. Then, if that's the case, do, do you, you know what I would? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if the circumstances were, if it was popular enough on Queen Street, <laughs> yeah. It, well, and as a food writer, he sort of has to. No, I don't have to be a cannibal. <laughs> if it, if it, that's probably the one. I think that's the one thing no, no, I don't no. have to eat. But if it was popular, if it was popular on Queen Street, yeah, if the hipsters liked eating food, your, then I would have to go and see what this whole cannibalism yeah, thing was and about. Your, and your editor said, you know, yeah. cannibalism is popular on Queen Street. You should give it a try. Then I would have to go. You would have to go yeah. and do it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Everybody's eating humans these uh, days. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm going to go try it out. So, but do you know what originally governed your decision to become a pescatarian? I went traveling through India. Okay. And I saw that here's an entire nation that's committed to vegetarianism. I met a few uh, Jains as well. And I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with Jainism. Jain is like a extreme extreme. It's like their, their priests wear masks over their mouths all the time. So they don't accidentally breathe in bugs. And when they walk, they have uh, people sweeping in front of their feet. So they don't step on any bugs. So what's accident. the philosophy? Like preservation? Yeah, to all its, life. Like lo- all life forms. So okay. the only things they're allowed to eat are things that are still going to uh, continue living after they eat them. You know, if you if you pick berries off of a bush, the bush as a whole will continue to live. You're just eating a and part of it. berries will regrow. Right? So you can't eat uh, like garlic, for example, because that's Balls. the entire bulb. That's the entire living creature. Right. So how do they survive? Like, how do they... They eat nuts, they eat berries, they eat... uh... I think a a successful Jane dies early. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, you have... There are enough things out there that you can live. But you'd have to be super, super But it would suck. Gandhi was a Jane, right? No, I don't think he was. He He was vegetarian. Super disciplined, though. Like, super, super... I gotta make sure that I'm getting everything. If you you want to live like a Jane, it's like, you have to eat, like stricter than any monk in the world like you have to <laughs> wow. it's a, a lot of discipline yeah, that's it's, crazy it's, it's tough so you were walking through india you saw and I just a saw, here's a whole a whole nation that uh is vegetarian okay i mean i think we all know that like eating meat is not necessary necessary if all meat suddenly disappeared there's enough non-meat food out there that we could all live right essentially we're eating meat for pleasure Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it has huge, huge, huge environmental impact. Okay, so I'm going through a thing right now. I mean, my my belief generally is like I like you know sustainable and like responsible consumption. I sort of take like the biblical take of like moderation, moderation and responsible dominion over yeah. over living things. Yeah. So in an effort to be more responsible because I'm in an economic position to be more responsible these days. I'm trying to eat, you know, free range meat and like, mm-hmm. you know, things that like had a life yeah. before they were killed in a sort of cycle of life sort of, sort of a way. Yeah. So a lot of be- people want to do that because now. I get, because I get the whole, so you want to eat old meat. I get the idea of like, you know, that the whole factory farming thing is not, is not really a great thing. But I also get that in order to sustain like 9 billion people in the world and keep food cheap, it's sort of the only way that I know of that, 
factory farming you could do it if you want to keep meat cheap yeah like if you want to keep meat cheap yeah, we could eat other things yeah. other than meat i mean right there's lots of other options that could exist that's true that's true if we want to eat so meat, then so eat meat. in my life now because you know getting free-range meat is like expensive i've cut meat out of my diet you know I only eat it like twice a week. And then the rest of the time I eat like mostly vegetarian now. All right. So, and then I think like, there's always like the, like you were saying, like the guilt, you know, you, you, I'm basically explaining this to you because I want approval mm. that I'm like, that I'm doing, the, that I'm like doing the right thing. Right. Yeah, I don't, know what, the, I don't know what the right thing is. Yeah, so, I wouldn't know either. So, so it's like, I mean, should we feel guilty about the way that we consume our food? I think so. I think we should. I think, some, we, should I think too. we should. I don't think we should all do what I'm doing and just eat whatever the fuck we want. Right. I think if we all behaved like that, it's, it would be a problem. I think that the reason why we're in the situation we're in now is actions without contemplation or Yeah, exactly. You know, if we just keep consuming things based on our based on our feelings, then yeah, things aren't gonna be great. Right. Humans tend to think pretty bad things most it, of the time. It would be like a you're here for a good time, not a long time sort of philosophy. Yeah, and I think that's how we mostly live. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I don't want to be a, a negative Nancy and just say, you know, you don't do this or do that. But I think I think it would be a good idea if we all could contemplated these. But then on the other side, we can't be the salesman. No, we, sh- we shouldn't. Right, no. we can't no. be killing people for eating meat or, you know... That kind of a thing. Because, like, for me, the most disturbing thing about it is, you know, you see the regular American family. Yes. In yeah. in that family. Yeah. You know, they're just living during a dystopian apocalypse where the lifestyle isn't suitable. Yeah. But take them to now, like, to present day, and their lifestyle would be considered normal. Yeah. Well, that's exactly, that's precisely what pisses off the salesman is that they're living the excess the age of excess lifestyle. And uh, yeah, that's what everyone in the future in this book calls the past, what they call our right. our uh, era, right? the age of excess. And uh, yeah, the salesman encounters this family and they're living, exa- they're trying to live exactly how we live. So do you want your readers to feel guilty or do you, what do you want them to like take away? I think, them- I think they should, I think, some guilt should should creep in there a bit. I think guilt became an overriding sense for the story, but I don't. I, I don't know if I if I would want people to read it and to hate their lifestyle. Yeah, but I think maybe just to stop and think about it for a second. I, I mean, I do believe in moderation and a lot of things, and uh, I think it's a good thing to think about. I think it's a good thing to stop and think: Am I being too excessive in the way I live, or? or humans being too excessive in the way we live i think it's good to just stop and think about it every now and then Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. interesting so what are your plans for the salesman you mentioned off the top that you were planning a sequel of some kind yeah we're not we're not sure exactly what we're going to do with it but we have we have a fairly well-developed story yeah so we're working on this second part for the story now the story, the second the sequel to The Salesman now, which will essentially take off from where this one left off. I kind of wanted The Salesman to get his. So does that happen 
in in in, in the sequel. You're like, asking us for spoilers? No, I, I'm I am asking you, but I don't really want you to tell me. I just want you to find a way to tell me without telling me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess we're not going to answer that because one. Because the rage I felt was like, oh, well, he just gets to keep doing this. Yes, yes. Right? It's true. It's very unsatis- it's very unsatisfying. Yeah, it's it's right. I, I can unsettling. See that. So that's why I'm asking. I don't really want to know, but that's sort of where you left the book. So I I think how can they possibly make a sequel out of this? Oh, it's it's actually going to be pretty easy. There's uh there's a lot of great places to go. Uh, I don't think it would be a spoiler. There's going to be a lot of interesting characters. We're going to talk about what uh, wrestling will be like in the in the future um, in this post-apocalyptic <laughs> like world. Professional wrestling? Professional yeah. wrestling? Are you a fan? I like I like it. I okay. do like it. I like the I like the whole idea of it. You know, my brother is a huge wrestling fan. Right, I, but how are you going to like carry on the the politics and the motivations that sort of thing? Uh, They're there. It's all, it's all there. I mean, it's really it's really quite uh, it's ingrained in the characters. It's really quite ingrained in the in the. In Nothing the... has even been drawn yet. Okay. But, yeah. but so far, I think there's going to be a, a kind of antithesis of the salesman, who's just as one sided and crazy, uh, crazily devoted to the to hedonism. But going yeah, going the other way. Uh, he's a crazy hedonist. Okay. And so uh the salesman and him are gonna have some fun times together. Okay. I don't mean they're gonna have sex, but No no no. But there's gonna well, be they might. They there's gonna be <laughs> We could add that. You're actually gonna have like a clash of ideologies. <laughs> yeah, total clash of ideologies. And they're ideology. gonna have to confront not just their the opposite ideology, but like a mirror image of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's cool. I want I wanna read this. Is the salesman two gonna have a subtitle? Like the salesman two, yeah. Back in I don't action, know, or? I think we have a the working title salesman two, the salesmaner. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> awesome, cool. All right, guys. Well, that's awesome. So, where can people find you, and where can they find the salesman if they want to check it out? The salesman's available all over the city uh, in different stores. It's available at uh, West End Comics uh, in the West Side. It's available at. Silver Snail, Silver Snail, the Beguiling Bookstore, the Tcaf Bookstore, and then it's also available online at www.underbellycomics with an X dot com, uh, Amazon, and Comicology. So you weren't happy with the original Salesman. Are you happy with this version of the Salesman? I am extremely happy with this version of the Salesman. It is uh, is probably one of the proudest things I've ever produced in my life. It's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Well, hopefully we make it a hit just just through this podcast. Oh, it's it's already a hit in my mind. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. All right. So can people find you on Twitter? Is that is that something you do, social media? Yeah, yeah. Uh my Twitter is Fushua uh F O O S H W A. Uh Fushua One, I think it is. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. All right, thanks, John Little. And uh I'm and on you, Twitter John Suffren. at uh at J Suffren. J S U F R I N. Okay. And uh, where can people find your writing? Uh, in the Globe and uh, Post City Magazines. It's on uh, Toronto Life, CBC Arts. Those are the, those are the main those ones for now. Ones. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And you can find this podcast uh, on Twitter at SpeechBubblePod and Facebook.com slash SpeechBubble. Uh, you can find this podcast and all our other episodes on on the website uh, neversleepsnetwork.com 
or on iTunes. So uh, thanks for checking us out, and uh, until next time for the next episode of Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 